You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Andrew Vasilik, who is founder at StartupSoft. And we're going to find out a little bit more about the company and his background in the startup environment, learn a little bit what he's doing with investment and services. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce. Glad to be here. So why don't we talk a little bit about your background before we get into StartupSoft and, and kind of what you're doing with the service model. How do you get into tech? How do you get into startups? What was your background? Yeah, so it's, uh, I got into startups about five years ago with my brother. We were in the middle of university studying psychology. So it was kind of a pre-dent, pre-dentistry program. And somewhere, I think second year for me, we caught the, the startup bug. <laughs> we had a bunch of ideas that, fact, that we yeah. wanted to work on. Yeah, and then it pretty much got to a point where we had to either choose startup life or continue with, with education, and we chose startups. So we, we ran through a couple of ideas, and uh, and yeah, we've done non-tech and tech things. One of the, I guess, non-tech companies that we, we had was similar to, to cannabis. It was the, in the electronic cigarette world. At that yeah. point, cannabis wasn't legalized yet, but yeah. we had we had some plans of, of kind of getting into the, the cannabis space, yeah. knowing that it was such a huge kind of black market at that time, but yeah. it was going to become a, a non-black market. So now we're startup soft and it's a, it's a service-based business, which is a totally different world than what we're used to, but it's you know still to some degree a startup. Yeah. And what, um, I guess, what prompted focusing on this need, or I guess, what was the problem that you saw that you, you said, wow, if we could solve this, that, that could be a really good business? So it was a personal problem for my brother and I. Uh, we're both non-technical and uh, you know, if you're, if, you're not, if you're not a technical founder, you have an idea, you want to get it off the ground. How do you do that? You know, you, you, you talk to mentors and you talk to investors and whoever, and everybody gives you the textbook answers. You got to get a tech co-founder. The reality of the situation is, is a lot more complicated. It's not easy yeah. to find a tech co-founder and it's not very difficult to find a good tech co-founder. So what ends up happening for a lot of startups is they go offshore. They end up outsourcing and most of them get burned. So it's, uh, it's not the best thing in the world to outsource an MVP. And we had some pretty bad experiences ourselves. So we, we saw that this was a problem that we had. We assumed a lot of other entrepreneurs had it, and that's a problem that we wanted to go after. At that yeah. point, we didn't really know exactly how we would kind of tackle this problem, but we had some kind of personal experiences with it. So we had a we had a start, and then we kind of started off from that. Yeah. So yeah, I see that a lot. I mean, got a lot of folks come to me saying, hey, like, do you know any technical co-founders? Every, everyone's searching for their technical co-founder, it seems like, these days. And why do you think that is? Like, what Give us a sense of your kind of assessment of the kind of market challenges or the market problems that leads to this lack of technical folks that can help in the early stages of companies. Well, I think you know, start- startups at their core are very risky ventures, yeah. especially in the early days. Getting involved as a co-founder, technical, non-technical, is very little chance of any sort of payoff. Yeah. So most people, uh, you know, if you get a, if you have two offers on on the table, one is for a normal job where you're getting paid and stable, and the other one is a startup. Unless you're crazy passionate about the startup, you're probably going to choose a regular job. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's one reason. Another reason is lack of network. You know, if you're if, you're, if it's your first second venture and you haven't um, you know had any big successes or have, don't have a huge network, then it's not, not really that easy to convince people to to join something at such an early stage. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are both very true. I think that uh, kind of access. Access to the market is a huge one. I, I certainly see, not to overcharacterize, but I, I do find that you know most technical folks are not uh, super strong networkers. So 
you know, being able to kind of get out there and, and get access to some of these offers to these opportunities is a bit of a challenge, or at least getting enough of them that you feel like you're making a good decision. You may, you may find, you know, things come across your desk, but knowing that you're looking at lots of different offers and you're actually choosing the right one for you is, is hard. But yeah, certainly the kind of the lack, I know in New York here, it's, it's kind of this combination of lack of talent and also the competition for talent. And we've got a huge, you know, financial banking industry here that tends to suck up all the high-end talent and happens to pay them stupidly high <laughs> salaries in terms of, you know, full-time jobs. So it's particularly hard in places like this. You know, in terms of the offshore, I mean, I, you know, I see this happen a lot. I guess, what do you see as the kind of typical pattern when people say, all right, well, I can't find a technical co-founder, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go at my own. I'm going to find an offshore team to work with. Where are they typically going? What are the options that you see most of these kind of non-technical folks have in terms of finding a development team to help them in the early stage? You have a couple options. The two big ones is freelancers. So mm-hmm. going on uh, platforms like Upwork or, you know, 10 years ago, it's called Elance. The other option would be working with dev shops. So a firm that can actually give you teams and they tend to be more expensive, but usually are better options than, than freelancers, usually are safer options, sorry, than freelancers. It's from what we've seen from from our experience as kind of being on both sides of the table as clients as well as service providers, is there's a pretty big mismatch of interest with yeah. service providers and startups. If you're a very, very early stage founder, one, you don't have a lot of money. So you're you're not gonna go with a top freelancer on Upwork. You're not gonna go with a yeah. top firm in India or in Eastern Europe. That on its own, you know, it can it's not hard to see how that could lead to a pretty uh, pretty poor experience or a, or a bad product. The other side is that the interest of a founder is to build a big company and the interest of a dev shop or the interest of, I would say, usually a dev shop, but in some cases a freelancer as well, is to get as much money out of the relationship as possible. So there's a pretty big mismatch of interest there. So what we ended up doing is we came up with a pretty, I don't want to say crazy innovative, but it was a pretty <laughs> effective model for us where we took discounts and then the difference between whatever the market rate is, uh, we gave discounts, sorry, the difference between yeah. whatever the market rate is, if we actually charged, we took an equity. So what that did for us is it gave us vested interest as well as allow people to work with more experienced designers and developers while still spending, while still having the same budget. So it was a pretty simple but effective solution for us. And it resonated with people pretty well. I mean, we've uh, it's worked pretty well for us. And what services, I guess, were you originally focused on that you, that you focus on now? When you say you're providing these services, what exactly are you helping these early stage entrepreneurs with in terms of the development side? So it's end-to-end. We started off with from kind of a target audience perspective with very, very early stage people. So people that just have an idea on an app kit, they're not technical, they want to get it off the ground. Uh, they're not necessarily looking for service providers. They're looking for more of a partner-like relationship. So we offer them end-to-end tech solution, anything from design to development to QA to project management to get an MVP off the ground. And we also have additional kind of value-added services of mentorship so we can connect them with mentors if they're struggling with, with the marketing or you know, maybe some other piece of the uh, of the business, as well as helping them raise capital. So connecting them with, with investors that we think might potentially be interested in putting in cash. And we do that because, you know, one, we want them to succeed, and another is because it also makes financial sense for us as well. You have equity now, right? I mean, if you're, if you're equity, taking yeah. this equity position. So let's dig into that equity calculation a little bit, just as I'm curious on how, how you've kind of structured it and how you think about it. So you basically say that we'll take a market rate, we'll, we'll agree on a market rate for these services. You then discount those services some percentage. I'm kind of curious how much, but that delta you basically treat as a uh, equity investment, like a cash investment on an equity position in the company. Is that, I have that kind of formula right or the concept right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much it. And that's pulled into a note 
typically because it's such an early stage. And then whenever they go out to raise money, then it, it gets converted. So it's like I say, if you're basically just saying you're, you're taking that amount and saying, we're not going to, we're not going to value it yet, but it will get, it will convert into equity when you get, when you do your next round at whatever valuation happens at that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. How did you come up with market rate? I mean, what's your, you know, have, having done this a couple of times myself, you know, there's, there's always sort of the concept and then you end up negotiating what, well, what is market rate? Where do you provide your services from and stuff? How, how did you do, where are your teams and, and then what's the market rate that you're kind of uh, pinning to? Yeah, the mar- market rate is something that's not, like, like you said, it, it, sometimes it can get down to negotiations. There's no like clear cut market rate for something. Uh, typically, as we look at the team that's involved in the project, we look at what the salary of that team would be in the market. And then, then we, we take a look at how much into our profit margins we can dig into. And then the delta is what, what gets put into the note. Okay. So the Delta, I guess, I mean, one, of, one of my general rules was always, I'm kind of philosophies was, I'm happy to put profit at risk, but it's hard for me to put hard costs at risk. Meaning if I'm, you know, if I'm going to, if the service I'm delivering is a $50,000 service and the salaries that I'm paying are 25000 out of overhead of 10, I can put $15,000 at risk in terms of converting that into, you know, something either on a performance performance bonus, you know, uh, outcome bonus or equity level, but it's hard for me to forego paying rent. Uh, it's hard for me to forego paying salaries out of my pocket for those cases. How, how did you, I guess, where were your lines or how did you approach the, the sort of internal calculation of the amount that you could put at risk? Yeah. So for us, it's, it's usually only profit that we dig into. Yeah. There have been a couple of cases where we, we help folks out and we, uh, we cover the salaries of the developers ourselves. Mm-hmm. Usually it's too risky and it's uh, very rarely has it actually worked out like like you want it to work out. So yeah. just like you said, you know, profit is something that we can actually afford to dig into. But as far as salaries, it's something that we, we try to avoid. Yeah. yeah. I guess any other terms or structure you put around things like I, I certainly found like how long we were doing this for, you know, the kind of the scope, time frame, things like that ended up coming into play. How did you deal with those sort of factors when you cut these deals with clients? If it's a fixed cost, then it's a lot easier. Like if we look at the, like for example, to build, build an app would cost 50K, but we're going to take, let's say 40. And then we just say, okay, the 10K is what we're putting into into the note. If it's more of a kind of a rolling dedicated team kind of format, then we, we just take a look at what this team would cost in the market. We look at other companies, what, what do they offer similar teams for? And then we say, okay, on a monthly, every month we give, let's say, I don't know, 2K, discount. And then if we assume the relationship is over the course of, let's say, three or, or let's say six months, then we just multiply that by, by however many months. So eventually you're going to come to a point where both sides just have to agree, okay, this is this seems to be somewhat fair for, for everybody. Yeah. Any learnings about types of companies that have worked well for, not so well, or types of products, types of situations, different stages? What were your kind of heuristics around making some of these decisions? The earlier, the, the riskier. Like idea stage is in, insane. Crazy, <laughs> crazy risky. We've actually now launching a new service that's, that's going after more like funded startups so a little bit later stage, at least see them, see them yeah. beyond. But early stage is crazy risky. People with no experience, typically it's tough for them. Yeah. As far as industries, we're pretty industry agnostic. We've done a good amount of blockchain work. We've done pretty much a little bit of everything. So I, I, I can't say anything kind of industry specific, but stage wise and experience is, is, a, is a big plus. Yeah. Anything about the uh, kind of types of founders that you found, you know, either more successful, less successful, or that you, you kind of t- tend to steer towards or away from <laughs> in, in terms of just like approach or thinking or personalities? I and mean, I'm always curious kind of what people use in terms of qualification criteria or filters that they know 
tend to work better. Like in terms of these, these customers work out really, really well for us. And these customers tend not to. So how do I, how do I prospect and qualify people appropriately? Any, any learnings there? Yeah. I mean, if you take a look at it kind of from an investment point of view, like if you're early stage investor and you're trying to pick, you're trying to get a good, good return on whatever cash you're putting in at an early stage, it's a lot more about kind of filtering out the losers rather than cherry picking the winners because it's yeah. simply impossible. Yeah. There's certain patterns that we've seen, you know, certain kind of traits of personality or certain circumstances that have at least somewhat of a higher chance of success. Yeah. Experience is, is a big one. So if somebody, for example, had an exit before and we had a couple of companies like that, they just blow mostly, mostly everybody out of the water. Yeah. If you have people that have experience in a particular industry, let's say as an employee, and then they see a pain point in that industry and then they go out, go out to solve it, they tend to do a lot better. As an example, one of the companies that we're working with is a, a guy based out of Toronto. He runs a bar. He's run it for 10 years and he, like all bars do, they, they have to order beer. Right. So I met with him one day and he showed me the process of ordering beer for a bar and it, it's insane. Like it's a, <laughs> It's like a mortgage document, no crazy long and yeah. uh, just a very, very archaic process. And he's he started a company to simplify the process of ordering beer for bars. And yeah. I think like out of the first 15 meetings that he had with breweries, everybody signed on. So yeah. too early to tell how they're going to do. But in these kind of situations, we like balance teams. So solo founders, they have a harder time. Somebody that can sell well is a big plus, yeah. uh, especially the, the CEO position. Eventually, you're going to have to be selling to, to everybody, right? yeah. so from, from employees to, to investors to customers. So yeah. those, are, those are kind of some of the I guess, rules of thumb or some of the circumstances that we've seen that have worked out better. But at the end of the day, you're, you just can't predict success. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think it's uh, correlate. I always think about correlating to success rather than predicting. You know, it's like, can I, can I increase my odds 5%, 10%? You know, that will, that will give me a good edge. But I, I like that. It's certainly find the, um, you know, certainly exit entrepreneurs. I mean, people that have, have been through the process once tends to be, uh, you know, a huge indicator or, or a huge correlation to their ability to do it a second time. The sales one, I certainly agree with. I mean, I think that, you know, that it is the nature of an early stage CEO to be a salesperson, even selling themselves sometimes <laughs> on ideas and, and, you know, keeping them motivated and pushing them through. Um, talk a little bit about your team. So how did you build your team, you know, in terms of the services that you provide? How have you kind of structured yourself? How have you found your talent? How do you organize that talent to be able to work with these different companies and uh, you know manage things? Yeah, I mean, I think in any service-based business, planning and having a proper structure is, is a lot more important than it is for a product-based business. So we've we've struggled, you know, to some degree in the early days. It, it gets better with time. You know, you you have a bunch of different projects that people are working on, so you have to have kind of a structure on a project by project basis as well as more on a high level. We're close to eighty people now, so it's. Um, you know, it, it, the more you grow, you you kind of have to make sure that uh, you, you have the right processes in place, not grow too fast without having these processes in place and the structure in place. Otherwise, it's just going to get going to be mayhem. But yeah, but so far, I mean, it's um, it seems to be fine. It can always be better, but it's all right. <laughs> Any anything you think you did either intentionally or serendipitously earlier in the company that has worked well for you? Any kind of learnings that you've been thankful for in terms of you know, how you structured things or approach to to running the business? I mean, there's there's always, I guess, things, decisions that you make kind of on the fly. Sometimes you, you just don't know how, how they're going to work out. Some work out better, some work out worse. Yeah. Like right now, we're, we're trying to, in any service-based business, you have a problem of capacity, right? Yeah. So resource management and how do, you, how do you make sure that people are not too busy and, uh, or, or not busy enough and kind of structuring that. 
it's pretty pretty hard. Making sure that everybody synced up, all the you know marketing is synced up with the tech department, the tech department is synced up with finance. So that's yeah. that's something that that's been not not easy to to work through. But I, I think comparing service based businesses to product, if if we were my brother and I, if we were to start a product based business, I think it will be kind of a lot, a lot easier from an operational standpoint. Comparing service based to product-based businesses is tough. I think one way of looking at it is kind of a product-based business that sells something that's perishable, like milk. You know, uh, having the proper planning and synchronization is just a lot more important. So that's something that, you know, we've, we've always tried to focus on. My brother, he's, he's a CEO of the company, so he's a lot more involved in kind of the operations at a high level. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a learning process. Though. Yeah, I always found service-based businesses, it's either feast or famine. <laughs> like you're never, this, there's this elusive momentary perfect balance, but you're never really on it. You're either flip-flop, you know, you're on one side or the other side, and sometimes you're flip-flopping back and forth. The other challenge I find, you, you kind of hinted at it, but I think it's important for service-based businesses or one of the dynamics in service-based businesses is, you know, whereas there there's an, there's an absolute capacity limit, meaning that, you know, an individual can only work 10 hours in a day. And so, you know, you can't work, you know, 40 hours on Monday and then, you know, not work the rest of the week. It just, there's, there's a, there's a time component to capacity that I think is really uh, part of the service-based business dynamic. And if you can't kind of load balance your demand, like if you can't figure out how to kind of line up your clients in the right way and kind of balance them in the right way, it creates this kind of chaos inside the business where you may have, you know, everyone working, you know, overtime one week and then have no work for them the next week. And getting that, that sort of the art of balancing demand ends up becoming really hard for, for service-based businesses. Anything, I guess, one thing that I, I often see is ways in which they sort of contract with clients or manage engagements with clients to do some of that load balancing. I mean, is there anything about how you manage your projects or how you engage with your clients that allows you to kind of better manage the capacity over time? For us, it's tricky because we work with startups and startups, they are pretty unstable. Yeah. So there is, you know, if we, if you look at you know, other, let's say, software consulting companies that work with large enterprise clients, you can plan a lot better with enterprise clients. Like they have certain budgets allocated and they, they have cash, they um, you know, they, they have certain processes in place and just a lot more stable. For startups, everything could be great one day. Another day, they could be going bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, we could be planning for, you know, a particular client, let's say uh, a sprint or, or a development release to happen, let's say, within two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then another sprint to start or another big uh, deal to, to begin. But then all of a sudden, funding goes dry. So then a team that we were kind of planning for um, is now without work. Yeah. So we're, we're always in this kind of situation. That's part of the reason why we're trying to switch over to, to a little bit later stage companies that have at least raised some cash. Yeah. And we know they're going to be around for you know typically at least two years. So that should kind of simplify the planning side of things. It helps to have everybody synced up. A lot of the times, you know, even if you have stable clients, if one department doesn't know what the other department is doing, then that could cause a lot of chaos. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, for example, marketing gets a new client and then they, they don't notify the tech department or something of that sort, then they can onboard a new person without actually needing a new person, just as a kind of a bad example. But yeah, I mean, just, just proper planning is, is, is very needed and proper communication with clients and between everybody within the company. Yeah. And what are you, I guess, what's your development cycle look like? What kind of rhythm are you generally working on in your projects? Uh, so we, we follow Scrum and I've, uh, if we do an MVP, like a very early stage product kind of thing, usually it's a two to three month build. Yeah. 
from pretty much nothing to to a ready product that can that people can launch with. After that, usually we try to switch people over to a dedicated team where we uh, we take a look at what their budget is like. Either they raise capital or maybe they they're making some money or they have a, a certain budget. We put together a team based on what we've seen before, and then that team works with the with the founders on a on a two two week sprint. Okay, you've got that kind of iterative process in place and working with their clients that way. So you can do, a, you, there's a certain amount of kind of adjustment or ability to kind of right size things on a, on a weekly or two, you know, every other week basis. Makes sense. Yeah. And in terms of communication, I mean, we mentioned it a few times, anything that you've seen particularly successful and how your teams, you know, communicate with clients, uh, either kind of practically, technically, uh, any kind of habits, patterns, rhythms, things that you put in place on your projects that facilitate communication between customer and team? I, I think in, in service-based, unlike product-based, there's a lot less it's a lot more difficult to standardize things. Yeah. You're just like you, like you mentioned, you're dealing with people. Everybody works differently. Some people are more calm than others. Some people are more blunt than others. And there's just a lot more variables that come into play. So when it comes to communication, you know, I think a good rule of thumb is to double check or to double confirm something rather than kind of have a couple of weeks or a couple of months to go by and then people be disappointed or surprised. Yeah. That something happened. If you're making any sort of changes or anything that, you know, could be iffy better to get that in writing or at least better to, you know, send an email after let's say a call to kind of confirm and make sure everybody's synced up so you can refer back to it if something goes wrong. Those are kind of some of the let's say basic things that uh, that have helped us. Yeah, I always say don't don't assume and uh, to assume makes an ass out of you and me. <laughs> <laughs> to pull apart the word a little bit. I think, you know, I, I think the, you know, a lot of these translate into basically any types of services, but certainly technical services where you're doing fairly detailed work and the kind of the, oftentimes I find clients, you know, customers, clients don't appreciate or don't really understand a lot of the technical kind of complexity and the dynamics that are happening. So for technologists to try to explain in business terms, what the decision, you know, what are the options and what is the decision kind of criteria. And if you're going to go it that way, here are the risks and considerations. That, that's often quite complex. So a lot of the times, it's really just assessing how much the client really understands how they're answering or what they're answering to. So yeah, kind of double, triple checking on those things and then following up seems, seems prudent, prudent options. So let's talk a little bit about where you're going with the business now. So I, we spoke earlier and, and you mentioned you're putting together or you're working to put together some, some investment or put together a fund. I guess what's prompted that or, or now that you've kind of taking the business to this level, what has been the interest in putting together an investment fund and uh, you know, what's the strategy there? On, on one hand, we've been investing, kind of non, making non-cash investments in forms of services. So we, yeah. we have the experience of at least some, some experience that investors do in, in a sense of sourcing deals, vetting deals, seeing how deals turn out that are on paper one thing and then how they actually turn out in, in real life. On another hand, we've realized that if we actually want to make money, make serious money from equity, then we, we, we wouldn't be able to... It's, it's all about selection. Like when it, when it comes down to uh, any sort of investment or, or picking a company, it's not really so much about how what sort of help you give this company. It's about the, the type of people that you actually choose to put in your cash into or whatever you make make any sort of investment into. Yeah. As an example, you take a look at Y Combinator, you take any company uh, that, that went through a Y Combinator into almost any accelerator in the world, they're going to do well, right? Or you take any sort of Harvard uh, student, you put them in any college, they're going to do well. It's not about, no, it's not so much about Harvard or so much about a Y Combinator or the services they offer. It's more about the, the selection process of the people that, that are actually in the program. So yeah. 
we realized for us to be able to get these kind of people, we wouldn't be able to get them on the terms that we have, which is cash and equity. We had to actually do something just for safe equity without expecting any sort of cash from them. So the idea of raising a fund and actually investing into companies, that's, that's kind of where, where it all started. And then the idea of investing in previously exited founders exclusively was, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned kind of before the recording, one part of that was intuitive in the sense that somebody has done something that you want them to do, which is to have an exit before, there's a much higher chance that they'll do it, do it again. There's insane amounts of research that actually supports that. People that had exits much more likely to have another exit. Usually their later exits are much higher than previous exits. Investors that fund previous exit founders, they have a much better return, both on a deal-by-deal -deal basis as well as a fund uh, fund by fund basis. So uh, a lot of research and just made sense to go in that direction. We haven't seen anybody that wanted to, that does this exclusively. Mm -hmm. So I think most investors, they want to fund previous exit founders, but there's not anybody out there that actually does that exclusively. And the reason being is very few people can actually get in on these kind of deals. I mean, yeah. there's not a lot of exit founders out there, relatively speaking, to, compared to the number of startups that are as a whole. Not a lot of people get in on these rounds. Uh, the reason being is that if you had an exit, you have options. Right? Yeah. Unlike a your average entrepreneur, usually you're chasing investors, but if you're an exit of founders, a lot of the times investors are chasing you. So you have a lot of options. You're going to go with somebody that either you know personally or maybe they, they funded your, your previous companies and everybody else are going to be stuck out of luck. So the idea from our side of things is that we're not going to be offering them cash, even though we're we're raising a fund, but the idea is that we're going to be able to offer them an environment where they can pressure this idea. So somebody that's had an exit, they're probably, you know, they, they go through a pretty similar cycle. They're kind of take some downtime. They may be stuck with an inquirer for a little bit, then they travel, then they give back, but eventually they're going to do another startup. Yeah. Most people. So what we're offering them is we're offering this sort of studio model where they come in with us for three months, they come in with an idea, we help them to pressure test this idea to see if there's any market need for it, meaning we build an MVP for them, we help them launch it, they see there's a market need, then they make a decision, okay, is this something that I actually want to dive head first into or not? So it's, mm -hmm. um, uh, even though, yes, it is a fund, it's a non-traditional fund in the sense that we're not writing any checks, we're mm -hmm. putting this into this sort of studio-like model. Yeah, I like it. I'm curious to see how it plays out. Andrew, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about Startup Soft, your kind of future investment fund here and stuff, the studio, what's the best way to get a hold of you or get more information? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Vasilik or LinkedIn, Andrew Vasilik. For Startup Soft, you can check us out at startupsoft.org. ORG. Great. I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes. Andrew, thank you again. This has been a pleasure. It's, it's fun to talk to someone who's been through that uh, tech service cycle before. Lots of familiar kind of uh, patterns, familiar experiences. So, um, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for taking some time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bruce. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.